For reasons I may never know, someone somewhere got the idea that I was rich. My name apparently found its way on a list, and I began to receive phone calls here at the office from big-time investment brokers. When the first caller nonchalantly asked if I was willing to invest a minimum of $50,000 in some sort of oil drilling thingamajig or other, I almost choked. I said, 50000 did you say? I figured the guy was nuts, and I graciously told him that. But the calls kept coming. It was amazing. These people didn't even, there wasn't even any tension in their voice. There was no embarrassment when one of them said, do you think you could invest $100,000 today? I told him I didn't think I could probably do that. <laughs> and some of these people would give me attitude about it. They basically were saying, you could read between the lines, listen man, you're on our list, we know you've got the money. You don't, and, and so they'd ask me incredulously, so you don't make investments like this? And I'd say, no. And it got to the place where I had a speech to give them. I am a Baptist pastor of a small church. I make no investments in anything, basically. Please take me off your list. I figured if worse came to worse, I'd send them a picture of my car, and that could pretty well <laughs> settle the whole thing. Obviously, I don't have that kind of money to invest. But imagine that one day one of those telemarketers called and informed me about an investment that yielded an incredible rate of return. Now, they all made that speech. But let's say that it really was. It was a sure thing. And as a matter of fact, you did not need to make any particular investment. You just needed to show up with what you had. So we refinanced our house. We emptied out our savings. We cheated on our retirement, whatever is there, and we brought it all together and we said, here's, here's what we can put in. And this broker took that money and invested it in this investment and it really hit big. And the dividends kept coming back and the money very quickly that we invested was, was, was paid back and then the money just continued to come and the investment continued to be made and I want to tell you now that today I am a very wealthy man. Would you want my broker's number? Would you want the ID number to that investment? That's a sure thing. Would you want, to put it this way, a piece of the action? Knowing that the very same investment is open to you, Will you not go home this afternoon and begin scrambling and putting together whatever you could put together to get into that investment? This magnificent yield. I think you would. I want to tell you that in a very real sense, the first half of Luke chapter 16 is a telephone call. On the other end of the line is a broker. His name is Jesus Christ. 
And he has an investment offer that should send us scrambling to get a piece of the action. It'll be a test of faith to see if we do. But Jesus delivers this message to his disciples by way of a parable. We've been studying a number of them. We looked last week at three, and we find another here today. A parable, beginning at verse 1. He tells this parable to his disciples, and I think that's important to note. This is not a, mention, this is not a parable told to the masses, not to the Pharisees in particular, though they are listening in. But it is a parable told to his disciples. And he says, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. This man's job is to oversee, to manage his master's wealth. He squanders that wealth and fails his stewardship, and so the master confronts him in verse 2. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Which being interpreted is, get out of my office, you are fired immediately. In a moment of time, the man's world comes crashing down upon him. He's a white-collar worker of sorts in a day when job transfers were essentially unknown. And so the man realizes, I am in deep weeds here. This is trouble. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. Literally, I'm not able to dig, which is probably more idiomatic in its understanding. In other words, that's, I'm just not going to bring myself to do that. Nor is he going to beg. I'm ashamed to beg, verse 3. You see his dilemma. What's he going to do? By the way, ver by digging, it probably refers to more than just digging ditches, but to any type of physical labor. I'm not going to go there. That's not who I am. And I'm ashamed to beg, what do I do? Verse 4, I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, apparently there's a little bit more to finish up before he's relieved of his stewardship duties, people will welcome me into their houses. I'd like you to notice that word welcome, file it, and just put it in the back of your mind for a while. We're going to come back to that point. They will welcome me into their houses. Two examples follow beginning at verse 5. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. So in other words, he's probably doing this with all of the accounts. Two examples. First of all, verse 5, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. How much do you owe my master? This is probably for psychological effect. The man's a manager. He's a steward. He quite obviously would have the accounts here, we would at least assume. But he wants the person to think carefully about how much they owe. And this is a very sizable debt, an annual yield of approximately 150 olive trees. It's a huge debt. What do you owe? He tells him. Then he says, I want you to take the bill, which would be written in the debtor's hand, so that it was clear that this was the debtor's debt. And he said, I want you to rewrite it. And I want you to reduce it by half. I'm sure the guy couldn't find his ballpoint pen fast enough, if you know what I mean. He's scrambling to rewrite this bill. And the steward acknowledges it before him. Second illustration, verse 7, then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. 
Again, a sizable debt, the annual yield of approximately 100 acres in that time and place before machinery, an immense debt. And what does he say? He told him, verse 7 at the end, take your bill and make it 800. So he reduces his debt significantly. It's not altogether clear what the man is doing, but he is certainly making people happy, isn't he? He is acting in the present in a manner that will secure help for him in the future. So shrewd are his actions that verse 8 reads, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. There's an interpretive issue here that is quite significant. A number of them, in fact. But first of all here, what is the master doing? Why would he commend this dishonest servant? The word that's used here for commend can be translated praised or approved. He's happy, it would appear, with the steward. He's not praising the man's dishonesty. Rather, he praises his decision to reduce the debt of his debtors. Now, why would a master approve of someone reducing the debt owed to him so that you as the master are going to receive less in return. He's losing 400 gallons of oil, 200 bushels of grain. That doesn't seem like it would make him very happy and that he would approve of the steward. There's a couple of possibilities. The, the master may simply here just be appreciating the shrewdness of the manager and that's all we hear. In other words, in some sense, he's just realizing he's been ripped off, but he just thinks, wow, that was a smart move. It's a little hard for me to think that when it says that he approves. The Greek word can be translated, he approves, he commends the steward. And that leads to a second line of thought, which is that it is very possible the steward is reducing his own take, his own commission. He's maybe charged exorbitant interest on these debts, and he's reducing that part of it. He will not receive that short-term payoff and... The master looks at it and says, well, that's smart. And he approves of what he's done. If the master has been swindled, it's hard to know why he's as happy as he is. But if it's simply the steward who's relinquished his commission, then it makes sense. And perhaps something like that is in view here. A short-term, present sacrifice is made for a long-term future benefit. That's smart business. And the master says, good job, steward. So in this interpretation of the parable, the dishonesty of the manager, verse 8, the first part of verse 8, your master, the master commended the dishonest manager, is not a dishonesty owing to what he did in verses 5 through 7. It's not that he's dishonest for reducing the debt, but dishonest is referring only to verse 1, that he's been a dishonest manager. That dishonest manager has now acted shrewdly. There are different interpretations, and I don't want to lean too much upon them, but I think this makes most sense with the master's commendation of the man and it also then aids us in understanding what Jesus is saying and how he seems to commend this dishonest steward as well not commending him for dishonesty 
but commending him for acting today in light of the future and doing so in a wise way. Another interpretive issue here, it's a tough one, one exegete called it an exegetical hornet's nest, verses 8 and 9. That always gives you trembling knees as you're reading that. But uh, it's, it's, it's a little difficult, but I think this will make sense. I think there's good reason to take it this way, that in the middle of verse 8, the parable stops, and the second half of verse 8, Jesus begins to comment on the parable. Does that make sense? So he's saying at the end of verse 7, take your bill, make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. End of parable. Now Jesus says, for, this is why the manager commends him, and why this has all taken place, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. What does that mean? There are two peoples here, clearly. The people of the world are whom? People of the world are those without Christ, those who are lost. The people of light are the saved, those who belong to the Lord. There's two peoples here, middle of verse 8. The people of the world, compared to the people of the light, those, the, the people of the world are more shrewd in their dealings with their own kind. What does that mean? I think it is saying, I think Jesus is saying that the lost are living for this world, and so they are often more skillful in their dealings with material things than are God's people who are living for the next world. When you are living for material things, you give every ounce of energy to concentrate on material matters. There's no God in your world, really. It's all about here. It's all about now. It's all about you. And so you pay very close attention to getting along in the temporal world. People who are part of this world and focused in this world are smart at that. They're good at that. They're better than we are sometimes about thinking about the future. What are you saying, Jesus? Yes, that makes sense as far as it goes. The people of the world are more worldly in their thoughts of money than are the people of light. What are you saying, Jesus, in light of this parable? Verse 9. Verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Think about it again in light of what this manager has done and in light of Christ's observation about the differences between the lost and the saved. I tell you, I'm telling you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. In that very full statement, Jesus has just delivered quite a package. Let's unpack it. Did you see that godless manager? Did you see what he did? Jesus is saying he was smart enough to use the resources at his disposal to secure future benefits. Did you see that? Now listen to me. I want you to do the same thing. 
as the children of light. I want you to use worldly wealth so that people welcome you. Remember the word welcome back in verse 4. Remember that? If I lose my job, I'm going to lose my job here, but if I give, reduce this debt, thinks the manager, people will welcome me into their houses. What houses? The houses that are right around him. He wants to be secured by their wealth and by their help. So he is saying, I want to be welcomed into homes. Jesus is saying to his people, you should do the same thing with material wealth. You should want to be welcomed by people. What people? The end of verse 9 says that you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Parallel. Welcome, welcome. Parallel. Material wealth, material wealth. Antithetical. Parallel. Earthly homes, eternal homes. There's the difference. Did you see how this worldling acted? I want you to act that same way with your material wealth so that you are welcomed into eternal dwellings. As the manager in the parable used the material wealth under his control to secure favor on earth, I want you to use material wealth under your control to secure favor in heaven. Who are the welcoming friends? Well, again, there's a number of ways of taking this. But I think sticking to the parallelism as closely as we can, and I think we can match this by themes elsewhere in Scripture to some degree, I believe these welcoming friends are those whose lives are influenced for God by means of giving away your material wealth. And remember, the accountant here is God. He knows every penny, he knows every investment, he knows exactly how it flows and exactly how it contributes to a person's eternity. So use material wealth so that as you enter heaven, there will be there a welcoming party. It's an amazing thought. I think if we're careful about what Jesus is saying, this is what he's saying. Our giving lays out for us a welcome of people who have been aided in their walk to heaven. I think of that in our context. As we give in our time, in our way, through to the church of Jesus Christ, and as we think here just personally in our own setting and environment, as I apply this to my own heart, we should look at our church and giving to God as we give on the Lord's Day in this very light, that we are contributing with earthly wealth for eternal, with eternal results in view. There are people that are coming to Christ as Savior through the ministry of the Word in the, at Eden Baptist Church. There are people who are being discipled and sanctified and led on their way by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. As we contribute to that process, we are contributing to having friends in heaven who will welcome us. 
There is giving in our church to what we call the Deacon's Fund and money distributed to that fund to people who are in need that we help as a church. Help from among ourselves and help on the outside of this assembly in our community. As we contribute to that fund, we are making friends for heaven. There are evangelistic efforts that take place here from this place. There's an outreach to young people every summer. More than one, in fact. There is door-to-door visitation from time to time. There are newspaper articles that are in our local newspaper, and there's someone who's paid to write those articles. By the way, I don't make a whole lot from the newspaper. It's from you that pays to write those articles. We're, we're, we're less than a dollar an hour as far as what the paper pays. <laughs> but you contribute to that work as the gospel is shared in the articles that go out in the newspaper here. There's a chaplaincy work that's done by both of our pastors in this community. And there is something of the gospel that is spread there through your contribution of what is a volunteer work in our community. You're providing for that as you give. There is neighborhood outreach of various kinds here. There is giving and there is evangelism that takes place. As we come and pool our resources together, they are trickling down to have an effect for eternity. We add to this missionaries who we support in various parts of the world, one for whom we've prayed and one for whom, in whose ministry we invest significantly as an assembly. And there are others. There are mission endeavors that we have undertaken as a church. And isn't it interesting, every time we initiate a mission endeavor, what do we start with? We, God willing, start with prayer in all of it and do as we bathe that in prayer at the beginning of the year in January at our all-night prayer meeting and as we continue to pray every Wednesday night. But where we start along with prayer is where? We need some money. We need to raise funds for us to take our trip to India. Two trips, in fact, now, to help the Shambhu's ministry there, to teach in the Bible college, to speak, to preach, to uh, teach in small home groups there in India. We've been to Canada. Soon there will be a mission taken here uh, in just a few uh, weeks for the fourth time in establishing the church out there in Halifax. We've been to Mexico to New York City, to Lithuania, Indian Reservation, to the inner city of Minneapolis. There's the teaching of seminarians that takes place here. There's the support efforts of camps that we have helped in the past and plan to help again this summer. Not going to them as campers, but helping them, pouring our resources into those ministries as they share the gospel with others. There's the Bible Distribution Center that we helped, and on it goes. I don't know that I've thought of everything necessarily intended to think of everything. But as these works are done, they take finances to to fly with. And so, as we give, we are contributing and making friends for eternity. You may never know how that simple gift that you gave trickled down and had an influence on a person who came to Jesus Christ. And I would just about guarantee that there are people who have come to Christ we don't even know about through some of these efforts. And some of those people coming to Christ as Savior, there will be a direct line back to your pocketbook. 
Jesus is saying, make friends in heaven with material wealth. The word that he uses is, as sometimes translated, mammon of unrighteousness. He is making as crystal clear as you can make. I'm talking about cold cash. Mammon of unrighteousness. Material, actual money can make you friends in heaven. You can be welcome there as your money has contributed to the salvation of others. And this is to say nothing about your own private giving to meet the needs of others, to loan things that you own, or as they say in Minnesota, to borrow them. <laughs> That's uh, in our misuse of language, but we borrow stuff to people, right? Do you do that? Or is your stuff your stuff? Do you loan your car? Do you loan your resources? Do you give your money to meet the needs of those around? Do you open your house and do you feed others there and house others there? Are you a person who gives? As we are, and as God writes the final account, knowing where all the pennies trickled down and how they had an influence in people's lives to help them come to Christ, to help them persevere in the faith, to encourage them in their walk with God. The ultimate accountant stands at heaven's gates and says, here's where your investment has gone. And I wonder if not throughout eternity we will begin to continue to make connections with people that we've actually helped with our material wealth. What a day that will be to find out what we've never known and never seen of how our giving aided someone else's salvation. That's an investment you live with for eternity. So Jesus is telling us investing our material resources in the cause of Christ is an investment that will reap eternal reward. How foolish to pass up now that future opportunity. A worldly person would never do that in this life. Why would you do that as you look for the future life? Now he draws some points of application along the way. Perhaps there's someone saying, right now I wish I was a millionaire. I see it clearly right now. I'm not, it's not, I'm not in the fog of this world and materialism of our culture. I see it now. I see it clearly. I wish I had a million dollars to invest in eternity that would go ahead of me and make friends and make dwellings there in eternity. Hold on. Jesus has a word for us as we think that way. Verse 10, he says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Now that's a basic, self-evident truth. Now here's his point, verse 11. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Worldly wealth is the little of verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little, that's the worldly wealth of verse 11. 
The true riches of verse 11 is the much of verse 10. It is a reference to eternal reward. I wish I had a million dollars. No, says Jesus. Don't worry about a million dollars. Talk to me about what you have. However big or little that is, that's really my call. I want to know what you're doing with what you have. Verse 12, And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? What does that mean? I think in context here, he's saying someone else's property are the physical, material possessions that you have in this life. Your property is the eternal dwelling places that you receive in heaven. You see, the wealth that we have down here is not ours, and nobody in their right mind could ever think that it was because you leave it behind. You didn't bring it in, and you don't take it out. How could it possibly be yours? It's obviously just a stewardship for a period of time. What is ours is what we send ahead and invest in eternity. If you're not faithful in the little things of this life, the small stewardship that God's placed in your hands for the now, why would it make any sense or be right for Him to reward you in eternity with true riches? I'm just trying to say what Jesus seems to be saying. It seems pretty straightforward. Application number two, and he digs in here. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Why is it that people spend more than they earn? Why is it that people fail to contribute significantly to the cause of Jesus Christ? I think the answer is because we love money. Why is it the people would be lined up to get the phone number of a broker who had a sure investment, but the same people cannot get very excited about giving to God's work? The answer is that we love money. If you love God, you will use money for His glory and invest it in eternal things. It's that simple. And Jesus says it over and over again. If you love money, God will get left out of the equation. You can have God and you can have money, but you cannot worship both. And the one you worship will get the honor, while the one you don't will consistently get the shaft. God lovers characteristically cheat on their retirement in order to invest in heaven. God lovers hurt their insurance coverage to invest in eternity. God lovers hurt their standard of living in one area after another to invest in eternity. They squash vacation dreams and they cheat retirement options for the future to invest in eternity. They work harder and think more innovatively to add more income to invest in the work of God. You cannot serve 
God, and money. You'll serve one or the other. So if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own in heaven? It says to me, I think, in Jesus' teaching, that no matter how much or little you make and own in this world, your possessions are a stewardship from God. He owns everything. And He chooses what to put under your management for His glory. What you do with your material resources will directly affect your reward in heaven. I just preach to my own heart and I share with you what I believe Jesus is saying. That if we are not regularly investing a substantial percentage of money in the work of Christ's church on earth, how can we imagine that God is going to commend our handling of earthly wealth? He gives us wealth to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6. He also gives it to us, however, to invest in eternity. How is your celestial portfolio? If you live life spending more than you earn, can you imagine God commending your handling of earthly wealth? If you live your life with no real idea of how much money you have and how much of a percentage of it you give to Christ's cause, do you imagine that God will commend the management of your earthly money? If you live your life ignoring the needs of others and hoarding money for self, do you imagine that you will be welcomed by God as a steward worthy of spiritual leadership in His kingdom? God knows all. He knows all. So perhaps there are some who through extenuating circumstances, and in fact, even because they obey Jesus Christ, find themselves in great debt. But I think that's probably fairly rare. The truth is that money management is a test of character. It is a test of loyalty to Christ. And it is a means by which God assesses our fitness for leadership in the kingdom of God. You don't need much of it. You need to do right with what you have. Jesus is telling us this. The issue is will we listen? There's a lot of people who don't. They don't have any time for it at all. And verse 13 reminds us of that very fact. Or verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. I don't think I speak to anybody who internally has been sneering at me this morning. I think I address an assembly of people in large part, if not unanimously, who say it's the truth. It's just reality. It's what Jesus is saying. And some perhaps there's a great level of conviction at this point, but you're still saying it's what Jesus is saying. But remember, there are people who do sneer. And I hope that that is not you. Literal text reads that they were turning up their noses at Him. 
When you love money, Jesus gets under your skin. He makes you mad, and you sneer at him. Who are you to talk like that? Jesus responds in verse 15, saying to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. Or to emphasize it differently, you are the ones who justify yourselves. God does not. He knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So while they justified their idolatrous love for money, God abhorred it. It was an abomination in His sight. I'll tell you, if you can read verse 13, you can only love one master, money or God. And you can read verse 15 and know that God abhors materialism. If you can read those two verses and be unafraid of the danger of money, then you are either a moral dullard in need of light or you're a child of hell. Jesus means to shake us up. You can't love God and money. He abhors materialism. Money is a tempting idol. We will either be consistently using it as a tool for the glory of God and investing it in heaven, or we will worship it. So says Jesus, I've got a deal for you. The ultimate investment opportunity, a holy, honest broker, a guaranteed investment, a never-ending return. Use your wealth to make friends in heaven. What a privilege. What an opportunity. What an investment. And you know what? In this game, you're rich. There's no bar at $50,000. There's no bar at $100,000. The bar is simply at stewardship, faithfulness with what you have. Remember, Jesus had that sort of equation, didn't he, when he watched the woman put in that small little contribution to the temple, which, by the way, think about it, how corrupt the temple worship was. But Jesus knew her heart, and he saw the little percentage, and he said, she's given it all. Which I read to say that the bar in heaven is equal for everyone. She gave 100%. She's going to stand way among, above that millionaire who gave half. What an opportunity. May we as people of light live as shrewdly with respect to eternal futures as the people of darkness live with respect to their temporal futures and to the futures market. If we follow Jesus, if we heed his counsel, I think in fact that we will. In one way or another, we will do you take this investment opportunity seriously? Are you building your eternal celestial portfolio?
Is this how you view giving to Christ's church? This should transform offering time. It's not this little necessary deal in the middle of the service. It's not the ticket at the turnstile as you go into the game or something like that. You've got to sort of pay for your seat. That's not what we do as we receive an offering at Eden Baptist Church. What we do is we walk to heaven's bank and we make a deposit. If we do so, with right spirit and cheerful heart, if we do so knowing what we're doing and knowing what Jesus Christ has promised, our offering time as a church is a time to invest in heaven's bank. Is that how we view our giving? Is that how we view our earthly possessions? I may speak to some here and you say, I am absolutely lost. What in the world is this all about? Putting money in heaven? Maybe you don't get that. Let me tell you, Jesus Christ died on a cross and he defeated death. He rose from the dead. When someone tells you he's going to rise from the dead and he does it after being buried and gone in everybody's book, you listen to what he's got to say about the next life. And Jesus is telling you there's a next life. And he's telling us that he's there. He awaits as he builds our home, and He awaits to receive us at heaven's gate. There is another world. This world is short, and it is temporal, and it is passing away, and nothing that we hold here belongs to us. We'll leave it all behind, just as we brought none of it with. But there is another world. And there is there a reward for those who lived by faith, who saw heaven's gates and invested there. That world is real, and you need to be ready to enter it. And you can be ready to enter it as you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I would call you to come and embrace Him today if you do not know him as your savior. For the rest of us, whether rich or poor, whether young or old, children, for you it might just be a few coins. Remember, what God places in your care is his. Are you investing it for eternity? As you give to God's work, no one here is worrying about how much you give. The concern is, does God have your heart? And do you show it by giving faithfully to his cause? You will never, ever be sorry. I'm yet to meet the first Christian who in this life was sorry. I suppose that's possible.
to give too much, to give foolishly in some way. I've never met that person. But perhaps there's somebody out there who gave wrongly. But I'm quite sure, through all eternity, we'll never meet one in heaven who's sorry for what they invested in the cause of Christ. Are you investing there? Let's bow for prayer. Our Father God, we come into your presence humbly. There is not one of us who stands here and says, I am the model. Follow me. I don't say that. I thank you for what you have taught me, and I thank you for what you've taught this church about investing in eternity. And I thank you, God, for the stout spirit of confidence and faith and the grace of giving that has marked this assembly through the years. What a wonder you have performed in a small church that starts out of nothing with no outside help and has never received any. To raise us up and allow us to make waves in this world. What a wonderful privilege is ours. And I thank you that I walk among such people. But Lord, we all need to be pushed and we all need to stop and think and we all need to see this world from its right perspective. Lord, help us not to be mostly turned on by what we are going to get in the future here. But may our focus and our love and our priorities be upon what we will receive in eternity. To your glory and to your honor and to carry on through all eternity the work of love. Help us to be building a house there where there's no price tag on the homes. Perhaps just percentage points. However you work it, however it is, God help us to see heaven's gates and to live in light of it. Teach us your truth, convict us of our need, and continue to build this assembly for your glory and your honor. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.